Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, wherever you're gathering from. We're so glad you gathered with us. We're in a series, a Christmas series, that we've designed around four Christmas hymns. As you know by now, today is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We've called the series, Do You Hear What I Hear? Because church, I'm convinced we sing these songs every year without really hearing what they say, even though we sing the songs. There's so much theology embedded in these ancient Christmas hymns that gives us so much good news in the middle of all the bad news. Now, I'm convinced the world doesn't hear what they say. Otherwise, Charlie Brown would have been canceled a long time ago. So one of our Christmas traditions, I don't know how it happens every year, but Charlie Brown Christmas ends up on my TV every single year. Yeah. And last time, I had to actually look up, when was this released? Because I can't believe they still let Charlie Brown Christmas on network TV. Because they end Charlie Brown Christmas singing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And the gospel is right there for all the world to hear. In an age where saying Merry Christmas can be offensive to some people, I can't believe Charlie Brown had been canceled. Obviously, they don't hear what it says, even though they hear the song. But church, I hope we will today. I want you to hear the amazing good news, the gospel embedded in this song. This song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, was actually written by this man right here. John Wesley is his name. It was released in 1739. Now, John Wesley and his brother Charles are actually the authors. They're the fathers of what would become the Methodist movement. The Methodist denomination traces roots back to John Wesley and his brother. They were both ordained clergy in the Church of England. John Wesley was a priest. He'd been to his doctrine of divinity. He'd been trained in theology. This is a man that certainly had a devotion to religion, but he did not know what it meant to be born again, and that would be the inspiration for the song that we heard sung and the song at the service close that we're going to sing. This song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, released in 1739 as a musical celebration of Luke 2, 8 through 14. So Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bible, open up right there. It's the very familiar passage that you hear every single year at Christmas time. This is the angelic celebration. It's the angelic invitation. Hark, the herald angels sing. And so let's read this together. This is the text that was the inspiration for the song, Hark, the herald angels sing. Luke 2 and verse 8. If you're ready, say Jingle Bells. All right, Jingle Bells is not one of the four Christmas hymns that we're gonna talk about this month. All right, just so you know, we're not gonna sing it, didn't make the cut, but it's a good song if you wanna sing it sometime later, you know, this month, all right, here we go. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. 
For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Luke chapter two records this angelic invitation, this angelic celebration on the night of Christ's birth. And that became the foundation, kind of the text, that gave John Wesley the inspiration for that first verse that we sing so often. So having read the text, let's go ahead and sing this together. Together, right now, listen, I'm not going to sing the whole thing with you this week because those watching online, it sounds like Pastor Phil's doing a solo. <laughs> and I want them to keep watching clearly into the service, okay? So I'm going to get you started, and then you guys are going to take over wherever you're watching from the world. You join in with us right now as we sing this together. Hark the herald angels sing. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. You know, this series will never be repeated for a reason. Okay, you're here for the one and only. Because they will never let me do this again, I promise, okay? So this song became the inspiration for so many Christians, generation after generation. And it really is a description of Luke 2's angelic celebration, this invitation. What does hark mean? Hark is not a word we use often, all right? But when your little kids today are not paying attention, just say hark, because <laughs> that's what it means. Hark, pay attention, listen. This is what John Wesley is saying. Hark, the herald angels sing. Listen to what they say, not simply the song. He's saying, listen, pay attention. Hearken to the message of the song. Hearken, listen. Pay attention to the theology embedded in this song, this song of celebration, this song of invitation. Now, this first verse is really built off of Luke chapter 2. Personally, the second verse is my favorite because that's where we actually start to dig in and get some deep theology. Where Luke 2 is simply a description, you have verse 2 that gives us a deep theological exposition of what happened when Jesus became a man, the incarnation. So you're off the hook here. We're not going to sing this, all right? Just relax. Let me read this. This is the second verse, all right. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing 
in his wings. I want you to see what he's teaching. The son of righteousness. This is actually a quote, almost an exact quote, from a messianic prophecy of Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2. The Old Testament has prophecy after prophecy written hundreds of years B.C. about the Messiah when he would come. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. It means the same thing. The anointed one. And when the anointed one would come, the promised one, God's son, there's certain things that's going to happen. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Malachi 4.2 goes this way. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Now I want you to notice something. Son is spelled S-U-N, not S-O-N. That's not a mistake. That's not a typo. Because the Bible is full of symbolism, and the Bible always defines the symbolism for you. It's self-defining. And did you know, Romans 1.20 says, that the entire world and all of the cosmos that God has created in some way is a reflection of the creator, meaning God teaches us what we cannot see by giving us something we can see. He teaches us about the invisible things by giving us something in the visible things. And when you look in Scripture, stars are a symbol of angels. And did you know the sun, S-U-N, is a picture of the sun, S-O-N? And did you know that God is light, in him is no darkness at all, 1 John 1 and verse 5, which means every single time darkness descends and chases away the light of day, it's a reminder that we live in a creation that's under the curse of sin. Because there's coming a day, the sun of righteousness is going to rise with healing in his wings. And the picture, the imagery here, is that just like every single morning, a new day dawns and the sun, S-U-N, rises on that eastern horizon and the bright white light of the sun chases away the darkness of the night, there is coming a day when the sun is going to come and the sun of righteousness is going to rise with healing in his wings and the bright white light of God is going to chase away forever the darkness and the sadness and the darkness of the night. It will flee when it sees God's light and paradise lost is going to be paradise regained. The son of righteousness is going to rise with healing in his wings. I want you to notice it's a his, not an it. Because the son of righteousness is not referring to that gaseous ball 93 million miles away from this third rock from the sun. No, it's referring to a person, and the person is God's son, S-O-N. And one day he's going to come. He's going to bring all the healing to this broken, cursed creation. Now, John Wesley goes on. Look at what he says. Mild he lays his glory by. This is theologically described for us by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Mild he lays his glory by. Who is Jesus? Listen, Jesus did not get his beginning as a little baby born in Bethlehem. No, Jesus has always been. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He is deity as the second person of the Trinity. But 2,000 years ago, he veiled his majesty. He veiled his glory. He took off his robes of royalty by putting on flesh like humanity so he could die on a tree at Calvary to redeem us from sin's penalty. Mild he lays his glory by. He set aside his glory, veiled it in humanity. Philippians chapter two, verse five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here it is. Who being in the form of God, thought it in a robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation in coming found in the form of a servant, being fashioned in the form of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Mild he lays his glory by. 
temporarily veiling his glory, his majesty. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Now this concept of the second birth, John Wesley would write, was the missing thing that he'd searched for all of his life as a very religious man. Here's a man that had been to seminary. He had the very best degrees and theological training. He had been ordained as clergy and a priest into the Church of England as an Anglican. Here's a man that was committed to his religion, his spiritual disciplines. But he said later, this is what was missing. He never understood what it meant to be born again. Even though the New Testament over and over teaches this concept of the new birth and needing a second birth, he would write that he would find later that this is what had been missing all along. Church, this is the difference between religion and redemption. John Wesley was actually sent by the Church of England to what was then the colony of Georgia in 1735. And it was there that he was to minister to the colonists in Georgia as well as take the gospel to Native Americans. He would actually leave two years later feeling like a complete failure. He was a failure as a minister. He'd failed in his ministry. He was on his way back to England, and he had about given up on religion. But it was there on a ship going over the Atlantic that he was in the middle of a storm, a horrible, horrible storm. And according to what he said, and he would write it in his autobiography later in his journal, everybody on that ship was panicking. Even John Wesley was in a panic because they believed they were going to die and everybody was panicking except for this little group of Christians known as the Moravians. The Moravians weren't panicking. They were praying and they were singing in the middle of this pandemonium, even when this minister, John Wesley, is panicking because he thinks he's gonna die. You have these little group of Moravians. The Moravians are what we would call today evangelical Christians. And we don't hear much about Moravians today. It's kind of a denomination of the past. But his relationship with them, meeting them, put him on a quest for the faith that they had. He began to wonder, what's the difference between my faith and their faith that they have such calm in the middle of this storm? He would sail back to England. In 1738, his relationship he met on that ship with those Moravians would introduce him to this concept of the second birth, and it would become the foundational tenet of his ministry, his message. In fact, he would later leave the Church of England. It was actually John Wesley and his brother Charles that would launch the Methodist movement, the Methodist denomination, a gospel movement that is still felt today around the world. What is the second birth? The second birth, it is a spiritual birth, not born of physical seed, but rather the seed of Genesis 3.15. You see, God put Adam in a garden. God told Adam, I made you in my image, in my likeness, Genesis chapter 2. And God told Adam, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Remember, Adam was made by God as a son of God. He was to take his seed into the intimacy with his bride Eve, and he was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with other sons of God, not sons of Adam. But God told Adam, don't eat of that tree in the middle of the garden. The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. You know the story, and the rest is history. When Adam sinned, he died spiritually, and we all died with him because we were in him, Romans 5 and verse 12, for as by one man's sin, Adam, death entered the world, so death passed on all men for all have sinned. But you must understand, in God's original plan, the sons of Adam, the daughters of Eve, were to live in immortality. 
We were never meant to die. We were creating the image and likeness of God who is eternal. But what happened? Adam could no longer reproduce eternal life. He could now only reproduce temporal life, physical life, which is why every single one of us come into this world spiritually or physically alive, yet spiritually dead, which is why Jesus would say twice, you must be born again. You need a second birth, a spiritual birth. And this second birth in the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, would become a tenet of John Wesley's message. What is the second birth? Born of God's seed, not born of man's seed. Genesis 3.15, God is pronouncing a curse on the serpent. And look, what it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the very first Christmas promise. This is the first Christmas prophecy. And what God was doing when he looked at the woman and said, her seed is one day going to bruise your seed. Notice her seed is capitalized. Her seed is a person. And what he's doing here is prophesying a savior king that will come and one day crush the head of the serpent. Seed is for reproduction, yes? This isn't a metaphor. Uh, Seed, if you put a tomato seed in the ground every spring, what do you think you're going to get in return? Tomatoes. You put some corn seed in the field in the spring, what do you think you're going to get in return? Yeah, seed is for reproduction. Now, this has been lost in our modern society. It's post-science, post-truth era. But you, you, you understand, it's the man that carries the seed. This is seventh grade biology, how are babies made class. We're going to keep this rated G, don't worry, all right? The woman carries the egg, not the seed. The man carries the seed, the seed meets the egg. Getting too graphic, aren't we? Okay, we'll stop right there. When God said it's the seed of the woman that's gonna bruise your head, what is he doing? He was prophesying one day there's a man that's going to come. A man is going to be born, but he's gonna be unlike any other man. He's gonna be the seed of the woman, which is an impossibility. The woman does not carry the seed. What he was prophesying is a virgin-born redeemer, a virgin-born savior king. Why was Jesus born of a virgin? Because as God bypassed Adam's seed, he bypassed Adam's sin so that Jesus, the Savior King, would be born sinless. You see, Jesus wasn't sinless simply because he never sinned. He never sinned because he was sinless. Now, why do you and I, as the fallen sons of Adam, the fallen daughters of Eve, why, even when you know what is right, it's still so easy to do wrong? I'll tell you why. Why? Because you're born in sin. We're born in Adam's fallen image with that fallen nature built in. Some of you are looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about, Phil. (laughs) You sit there all self-righteous, but you know. Listen, I'm a good sinner. I'm really good at it. And something tells me you are too. Come on. You know why? Listen, we are sinners because we're born in sin. We don't simply sin to become sinners. We sin because we're born sinners. 
Yeah, I know, this is completely opposite of what the world tells you now about humanity. Oh, you're awesome, you're amazing. I know, I know, that's what the world says. The world says we're basically good people that can sometimes do bad things. Guess what the reality is? Jeremiah 17, 9, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. That's why we can sometimes do good things, but it's so easy to default to the bad things, even when we know that we ought to do other things. 1 John 1, 8, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And this is why it was imperative that the Savior King would be born of the seed of the woman, a virgin-born Redeemer, because had Jesus been born of Adam's seed, he would have been born with Adam's sin, and he would have been just like any other man. But because it was the sin of a man that brought down the curse of sin for all men, only the death of an innocent man could reverse the curse of sin for all men. The problem is all men have sinned. Romans 3 and verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. And so what happened? God himself became a man so that he could take our sin and become our sacrificial lamb to redeem us again. And what happens when you put your faith now in him and you trust in him, you are now born again of God's seed. This is what the apostle Peter would teach and what he would say in 1 Peter 1, verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. See, the first time you were born physically, you were born of corrupted seed, which is why one day you're going to die because you're under sin's penalty, that seed that was meant to give life could not only give death. But when you put your faith in Jesus, guess what happened? You got a second birth. You got a new birth. You got a new beginning, born now of God's seed, that seed of Genesis 3.15. It's the word of God which lives and abides forever. Connect the dots with me now, John 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that is what we celebrate at Christmas, the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. And when you put your faith in him, you are born again. Now you are born of God's seed so that now you can live forever as God always intended when he put Adam in a garden and said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. See, God gave a son born of a virgin to give us a second birth so that we can live forever. Now, what is interesting, John Wesley, here's a man that was trained theologically. He did not understand this until he met this little group of Moravians. Here's a man that was, that was committed to spiritual disciplines, committed to his religion, but he always knew there was something missing, and this is what it was, the new birth. Here's another man. You read about in Scripture, John 3 and verse 1, Nicodemus was his name. Very much like John Wesley. John Wesley, a trained theologian. Nicodemus, a trained theologian. But you understand, you can know all about God and still not really know God. John Wesley knew all about God, but had not really met God. He'd never been born of God. Nicodemus knew all about God, but still didn't really know God. Like John Wesley, he goes searching for the meaning, what is missing. It says in John 3 and verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus, if you read the whole text, says, are you a teacher of Israel? You don't know this stuff, really? Look what he says here, he says this. Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of people have erroneously taught here that Jesus was teaching that if you want to go to heaven, you got to go through baptism. you got to be born of water, baptism, and the Spirit. But we know that's not what Jesus was teaching. Because Jesus himself is going to define exactly what he's saying for us in the very next verse. He says, you must be born of water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. What happens when a woman gives birth? The first thing that happens is what? Her water breaks. That which is born of flesh is flesh. When he says you must be born of water and the spirit, he's speaking of your physical birth and then he speaks of your spiritual birth. You must be born again. The first time physically is insufficient. You must be born spiritually. And just to make sure we didn't miss it, he says it again, verse seven, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And the question then is, have you been born again to be a child of God? You see, you're not born a child of God. You were born a son of Adam, a daughter of Eve. You were born with man's seed, but you must be born of God's seed. John 3, 16, Jesus says these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, a lot of people see this word begotten, and they think, well, see, Jesus had a beginning. He was begotten of the Father, like, you know, the Father somehow made Jesus, created Jesus. That is not what this word means at all. Begotten comes from the Greek word monogenes, monogenes, mono, singular, one. Monogenes, it implies Jesus is the unique, singular, one-of-a-kind son. See, God has many sons, of which I am one. But Jesus is the son, wherein I am a son. What makes him unique, one of a kind, as God's son? He's from everlasting to everlasting. He's from eternity as the second person of the deity. And what Jesus is now teaching Nicodemus and this audience that's listening, he's saying God so loved the world that he gave his unique, one of a kind son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now I want you to notice, Jesus didn't say believe about him. He said, believe in him, and there's a difference. Believing about him is religion. Believing in him is redemption. John Wesley knew all about Jesus. He knew about Jesus, but he never actually met Jesus until he was born again. Nicodemus knew all about God, but Jesus said that's not the same as trusting in the Son of God. And the question for you and I today then is this, do you know the joy of redemption? Are you still living in religion? Have you ever been personally born again? That's what's at stake and every single one of us must answer. You must by faith receive the Son of God to be born again as a child of God. Here's the reality, there's a lot of people, they're not necessarily against Jesus, they've just never received Jesus. They know all about Jesus, they even kind of like Jesus. 
They've just never received him. Listen, this is a gift, the gift of salvation, which is eternal life. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's called a gift. Listen, heaven is not a reward for being good. Listen, you can earn a reward. You can buy a reward, but you cannot earn nor buy a gift. If you gotta earn it or buy it, it's not a gift. Your salvation is a gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, the nature of a gift is it must be received and it's free. This is the time we give gifts to people we love. Many of you will give gifts to your children on Christmas Day, how many of you would dream of giving them a bill at the end of the day? <laughs> Say, pay me back in January. <laughs> yeah, you would think about it. You might actually, but, but you wouldn't dream it. You wouldn't actually do it. No, no, you're gonna think about it. Listen, I just have to tell you, I got big kids now. You give fewer gifts, but they get more expensive. Okay, I'm just saying. That's the nature of a gift, though. You, you don't send somebody a bill for it. They can't earn it. They can't buy it. It's not a gift. God is offering you a gift of eternal life, the gift of his son, but it must be received. For some of us, we're not against Jesus. We've just never received Jesus. My wife gave me a gift, a Christmas gift. I'm not making this up. Three years ago, I did nothing with this gift for three years. She gave me a gift three years ago at Christmas. It sat in my nightstand, unopened and unused for the last three years. So she knows I've always been into family history, genealogy, so she got me one of the spit tests from Ancestry.com three years ago. And I was excited about getting it until I looked at it, read the directions, said, you must activate this by going online. That was all it took. I don't need another password to have to remember, okay? <laughs> so I put it back in the drawer, didn't look at it again for three years. I wasn't against it, really. I was actually thankful for it. I just had apathy toward it. Hey, I, I'm not against, like, you know, Phil, you know, you think it's a good idea? You know, there's this conspiracy thing, like, what are they gonna do with your DNA? I just think, like, whatever they're gonna do with anybody's DNA, they can do without mine, so what does it matter? Like, I'm not against it. I just never did anything with it. That's how a lot of people are with Jesus. You've been offered the gift. You're not against the gift. You've just never done anything with the gift. The gift has to be received. Will you receive the gift of eternal life this Christmas? How many Christmases will come and go before you finally understand the songs that we sing. Do you hear what I hear? Listen carefully. It's about eternity. It's about salvation. It's about life and it's about death. Will you receive the gift of eternal life? That's what's at stake. And in the end, that's all that will matter. Look at John 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, that's Jesus, to them, he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. I want you to notice something. We're not all God's children. That's what you hear everybody say today. All 8 billion people on the planet. Well, we're all God's children. No, we're not. 
You were born a son of a man or the daughter of a woman. You were born of Adam's seed. That means you're born with Adam's sin. You must be born again to become a child of God. I was born the son of a man named Van, but I've been born again, then I'll be called a son of God. You see, it's very specific, isn't it? But as many as received him, Jesus, to them, and only them, he gave the right to become the children of God. You see, in Christ, when you're born of his seed, you get back everything Adam lost in the garden. You get back the title child of God because now you get the image of God. You enter into the family of God, and now you're part of the kingdom of God, and everything God would have done through the first Adam, he's now doing through the second Adam, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's right, the Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, that Jesus is the last Adam because he wants you to connect the dots to the first Adam and everything he would have done in the first Adam where Adam failed, he's now doing in the last Adam and Jesus will finish. But have you been born again, born of God's seed to become a child of God by faith in the Son of God to those who believe not about his name, but in his name, look at what it says, who were born not of blood. Your bloodline will not help you. I got hopper blood running through my veins and it will be no value in eternity. I actually have traced back my lineage, the hopper line, uh, clear back to 1608, just about 10 minutes on the computer. My dad had actually gone clear back to Virginia in the late 1600s. It's amazing what you can do now. Uh, very, very interesting. About 10 minutes on the computer, hopped the Atlantic to a man named Thomas Hopper, born in 1608, Northamptonshire, England. He had a son he called Thomas. Thomas Jr. was actually baptized in the Church of England, 1648. It was Thomas Jr. baptized in the Church of England, 1648, that would sell himself as an indentured servant to pay his way for the voyage where he would settle then across the Atlantic in Virginia in the late 1600s. Thomas would have a son named Blagrobe that would have a son named Joseph that would have a son named Blagrobe that would have a son named Raleigh that would have a son named John that that would have a son named William Arthur, that would have a son named William Arthur, that would have a son named LT, that would have a son named Van, that would have a son named Phil. 500 years, 11 generations of Hopper men. I can trace back 11 of my father's, grandfather's, great-grandfather's, 500 years of Hoppers, and I notice one thing they all have in common. They're all dead. <laughs> Which means it doesn't look very promising for me. You know why? Because I was born of the seed of a man named Van, who was born of the seed of a man named William Arthur, who was born the seed of a man named William Arthur, who was born the seed of a man named John, who was born the seed of a man named Raleigh, all the way back to Adam, born of man's seed, which means we're born with man's sin, which means I'm under the wage of sin, which is death. It's a universal rule. One day I'm going to die, but the good news is I've been born again, no longer simply a son of a man named Van. I've become a child of God a son of the living God, born of God's seed. Amen. So that I'm gonna live forever. 
Oh, yes, my dad was born again as a son of God. His dad was born again as a son of God. I think his dad was born again as a son of God. See, those hopper men all died. You know why? Because it was not our bloodline that had the power to save us. It matters not my family name, my ancestry, my history. No, it's not of blood, hopper blood. I have been born again, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in the end, that's the only blood that has the power to save. Listen carefully, this is the age, a lot of us are interested in family history, our ancestry, but do you understand what matters is not your family of origin, your ancestry, your family history, what's at stake is your eternity. And in the end, that's all that matters. Your real identity is not in your family history. No, your real identity is in your future eternally. And that's why he says, not born of blood, as in your bloodline, uh, nor of the will of the flesh. That was John Wesley. He was a man in his own power. He was committed to God, going to appease him, going to please him by keeping his religion and the tenets of his religion. He was very, very committed to his spiritual disciplines. It's not by the will of the flesh, not of works lest anyone should boast. He says, nor of the will of man. You know what that means? It means I can't do this for you. No priest, no pastor, your mother, your father, nobody can do this for you. I can't want this for you, but I can't do this for you. You must be born of God. So the question remains is this, have you been born again? It was 1738, just a couple of years after he'd met those Moravians. John Wesley came back from Georgia feeling like a failure. He had religion, but something was missing. They introduced him to this, this concept of the new birth, a new beginning, a relationship, not simply going through the motions of religion. He wrote in his journal at 1738, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. This was a church meeting of the Moravians. He went unwillingly, kind of kicking and screaming, you know, dragging his feet, okay, I'll show up, like some of you here today. Yeah, you came for somebody else, Yes, you didn't want to, it's okay, I love you anyway, it's all good. It was John Wesley. Didn't really wanna be there, but his life was about to change. He says, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and this is the key, Christ alone. It's not Jesus plus you. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's not his work plus your work. It's not what Jesus did and now all the list of things you got to do. He said, I came to the place where I finally trusted Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And one year later, he would pin these words to hark the herald angels sing. Listen, John Wesley was saying, listen to what they are saying, not just what they're singing. The 
sinless son of God was born like the sons of men so that we can be born again to become like him. And on this night, John Wesley would say that was the new birth. And on this day, for some of us here, some of us listening online, today is the day for the new birth. I have to warn you, just like there's a second birth, there is a second death. Apart from Jesus, you will die physically because these bodies are under sin's penalty, but then you'll die again eternally and spiritually. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15 calls the second death the lake of fire. The lake of fire is synonymous with the second death. Yes, there is a second birth, there's also a second death. And right now we're talking about life and death. And I'm asking you today, have you been born again? Have you had the second birth? And church, I love you, every single one of you, I really do. You mean the world to me. I'm not trying to talk down to you. I'm not trying to rebuke you, reprimand you. I care about you. I care about your success in the here and now and the here and forever. But some of us are just playing games. I know because I was one of them. Raised in church, I knew all the answers. I had my religion. But I did not have the new birth. And like a lot of people, some even here, some watching online, I wanted just enough Jesus to get into heaven, but not enough of Jesus that I'd actually have to change my life. I wanted enough of Jesus so God wouldn't be mad at me, but not enough of Jesus that he'd actually get all of me. Today is the day to make a decision that has the power to define your destination. So have you been born again? If you're born twice, you'll die only once. But if you're born only once, you will die twice. I'm gonna pray a prayer right now. I want you to just bow with me right now. Just close your eyes for a moment. We're not gonna be here very long. And would you have a little time of introspection, self-examination? Whether you're in this Lee Summit Auditorium or anywhere around the world, the next few moments in time could define your eternity. Can you say with certainty, if you died today, where you would be or what you would see? Are you certain of your destination? And if you're not today, all that can change. And I want you to pray with me right where you sit, wherever you are in the world, God will hear your prayer. He'll forgive your sin. He'll give you the new birth, a new beginning. If you're not certain today, pray this right now with me. God will hear your prayer. Jesus, say, say, Jesus, I know that I've sinned. 
that I am separated from heaven. And I know that today my hope is not in religion. Jesus, you came to give me redemption. And today I receive you by faith as the resurrected Son of God so that I can be born again as a child of God and live forever. Make me a new creation. Help me to follow you all the days of my life until I see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.